Thank you, David. My name is Billy. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a member of the suburban men's group that meets on Tuesday nights in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, there's about 130 guys, and we, uh, we have a lot of sobriety there. My sobriety date is November the 1st, 1980. I say that to impress you. <laughs> Not with anything that I've done, but with the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm one of the fortunate ones. I'm one of those people that for the longest time, I'd rather take my last breath than take my next drink. And uh, yet I will tell you, suffering alcoholics can be around here for a long time. You You can get your program shaken all the way to the bottom. And uh, my sponsor, uh, during a little uh, recent travail, reminded me, the first deal is uh, we don't drink. So uh, it, this is the first time that that's uh, been an exciting proposition in a long, long time. The uh, fellowship of the spirit that I believe in so strongly was uh, evidence yesterday as three guys came to pick us up a hundred miles. Now, I don't know if that's a Missouri kind of thing, where it t- takes a Mississippi kind of thing, where it takes three guys to do the job. <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I will say that uh, that then again, if you look at the three people they were picking up, uh, <laughs> and. The one thing about it is that we kind of fancy ourselves kind of Jesse James or, you know, kind of a gang of, of desperados, you know. Uh, and I kind of got to thinking that maybe you all kind of see us more as the Marx Brothers. Uh, I uh, do want to thank Steve and Steve and uh, Dave, my host, has just been wonderful. And Yasmin, who uh, was relentless and... Uh, pursuing me uh, <laughs> by telephone. Uh, I, I am very hard to get a hold of on the telephone. My sponsor points out on a regular basis the importance of returning your telephone calls. And I, and I always say, look, you know, I'm not ignoring you. I'm just not returning your call. <laughs> you know? But uh, he also points out that very few people come down in person to get a lawyer. You know, they usually like to call. Uh, and uh, that kind of learning to live life on life's terms, that kind of path is not specifically spelled out in our book. But if you adopt this path, learning how to live has very much been the challenge of much of the last 23 years next Saturday. I've been longer. I've been uh, sober longer than I was drunk, uh, and that's uh, that's an interesting thing because I I would think that I would be further along the road. But if my story has anything to uh, share in particular, it is the story of how half measures are better than no measures at all, uh, and. Uh, 
And a lot of times people come up to me, you know, Burns and I are both in the same home group, the suburban men's group, and, and these new guys, you know, they're just out of the, the homeless shelter, and they, and they say, uh, my program not working too good, Billy. And I, I always say, well, why don't you try the one in the book, <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> uh, that's what I did. I was, I was big on my program. I had the Billy Hoke program. I, I call it As Billy Sees It, you know? <laughs> It's the 12-volume set. It's, uh, Don points out from time to time that I do things a little grandiose. Uh, they call me Cecil B. DeHogue at home when I, I'm putting together a programs because I can be useful. Uh, Don pointed out that the point of the seventh step is to be useful. And I have that opportunity. I'm not... Uh, a leaf, as he described last night. I am so excited to be here with two of my very dearest friends in the whole world. Two of the people who supported me when I knew that I couldn't keep doing it. When I was that close to not drinking, but just that, who cares? You know, I quit. You know, I don't need to hear all this all this pap, you know. If I hear one more slogan, you know, I'm going to smack somebody. You know? <laughs> one time Burns made a house call on me. He's the busiest man in the, in the addiction field. I'm, I'm positive of that. I've, because I know a lot about it. I've been around a lot of that stuff. And, and I know he's the busiest guy in the world. One Saturday and Sunday afternoon, he... He took out from his schedule just to come over to my house and say he was a little worried about me. I looked tired. And, uh, and he's always supported me. He's always, he's always been amused by me. <laughs> he says that uh, the interesting thing about me is no matter how bloody my nose gets, I, I always seem to get back up. And uh, that has been the only thing I've done right. And as you heard Don say last night, that's the only kind of spiritual experience and practice that I know about. My practice is getting failing 50 to 100 times a day and getting back up. Uh, I uh, am uh, excited also about being here with my sponsor, but it's a little bit intimidating. And you're going to hear, of course, a number of things he told me. Because 99% of anything I've got to say in life that has any substantive value I learned in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he has been my guide for many years now. And that isn't to say that I haven't had a lot of other teachers. I've had a lot of wonderful teachers. <clears throat> but I don't know if you're like me. I don't learn much by listening. I learn by, you know, I'm the kind of guy that I will put my hand on the stove the second time. You know? <laughs> Just to make sure, you know, it's just as hot as it was the last time, you know. And uh, and Don's the only person that I've been able in my life to uh, be able to listen to and believe at enough level to realize, to take action based on what his way is. And it's uh, because he's so gentle and he's so kind. And I'm very envious of that. And he does things with a sense of humor and with questions. He always asks me questions. You know, they're basic kind of with a little humor on them. They come down to 
You think that's going to work? <laughs> but he is my dearest friend. And uh, that is about this fellowship of the Spirit. You can have dear friends. I was talking to one of my dear childhood friends the other day. They had a legal matter. And uh, and we're, we're close. We're very good friends. We've had lunch together on Christmas Eve for 34 years. But it's not the fellowship of the Spirit. It's not that common problem and that common solution where we have struggled at times to continue with this process. If you wanted to find the one word in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 164 pages, but up there on our our board, if you want to find one word to capsulize the first point of what might be most important, it's continue. Continue to go to meetings. Continue to read the book. Continue to call your sponsor. Continue to do the next right thing. Continue to meditate and pray. Continue to not do a bunch of stuff, you know. (laughs) Um, But I'm supposed to tell you what I was like, not what it was like. What it was like may have been better on any given day than what it is like today. It's what I am like and how I respond to that that is the difference. My answers to the problems 99% of the time are worse than the problem. (laughs) And uh, I I really, uh, we're bad problem solvers. Um, But I'm supposed to tell you what I was like. Well, I was brought up in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, Louisville, Kentucky is kind of a picture out of the Great Gatsby. You know, we uh, and we we fancy ourselves kind of southern and and kind of a fine society. And of course, we have that unspoken rule that we don't talk about alcoholism. You know, they have the failing. Well, you know about Dobby, my mother. You know, she's had some problems. You know, we don't like to call things out loud by their names, as Don was pointing out, labeling things. I'm thoroughly, I'm get so delusional from time to time. The longest I've ever gone missing meetings was nine days one time, and I thought I had been going to the meetings because I wrote them in my calendar. And I called up Don, and I was raging on and on about something, and it turned out that. I, had, I couldn't label what was going on. I was accusing my secretary of stealing because we were having an argument over how many vacation days she got. And Don said, Billy, you can't even put the right label on it. And it's true. Uh, when we get delusional in this disease, we can't, uh, lack of proportion, inability to think straight. That's what we say about Jim, the car salesman's insanity. Well, of course, that is the dramatic picture of what's wrong with me when my disease is screaming. Because it's about me. I always say I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. (laughs) Uh, But I was brought up there, and and I was born into a family that was had we had all the advantages, and and certainly my father and mother had every advantage, and my father's name is Hoag. My last name is Billy Hogue, and uh, Hogue is very, very Scottish. And uh, my mother's name was O'Brien. That's kind of Irish. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, the Irish gave the Scots a bagpipe as a joke. <laughs> you know? We don't get it. We're not real bright. 
<laughs> you know, we don't catch on real fast. You know, I mean, we think golf's a game. <laughs> you know, we think bagpipes, bagpipes are music. You know, I mean, we don't get it. Uh, but we don't give up either. We don't let go. You know, the British never conquered us, and we lived next door. They took the rest of the world as the empire, but they never conquered us. Because we don't give up. Anybody that thinks that alcoholism is about lack of willpower simply doesn't understand what I was willing to do to keep drinking. I mean, that's the silliest thing. You go out there with what we call normies and earth people, and you, and they think that you'd lack willpower. My goodness, look at what I was willing to do to keep drinking. Whenever somebody asked me, hey, Billy, do you want a beer? If I said no, I had entirely misunderstood the question. <laughs> you know? So, I... Uh, I got willpower. I had plenty, and it was. And I was brought up with this little sister. She was this beautiful little sister. Her name was Annie. She was a little tow-headed blonde kid, and uh, she was quite a little girl. And uh, I, uh, I loved her. Every picture you can see, I'm, I'm hugging her and I'm holding her, and we're playing on July the 23rd, 1953. We're playing catch on the roof of a construction project right down the street from my house. And we're playing catch up there, and there are about 10 kids, and we're running around. You, in Louisville, it's oppressively hot in the summer, and it's like the Mississippi Valley. You know, it's very humid. And, and we're running around in just our little khaki shorts, and I push my little sister, and she falls three flights, She's crushed on the concrete floor, and nine days later she dies. And I don't know exactly what that did to me, but I know what it did to my mom. It gave my mother an excuse to keep drinking. She always had an excuse. If you have an excuse to drink, you too can forfeit your life to this disease. But you know, I told that story one time at one of these things, and a, a fellow came up to me and he said, You know, Billy, I suspect that you don't know what the experience is of losing a child. And he was right. And so I'm careful at meetings to not tell someone, Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, I feel you. Maybe I don't at all, huh? So, regardless, my mom never could get over that. And uh, don't you know my little girl, Annie, she died. And it caused a lot of trouble around the alcoholic house because we had the rules in the alcoholic home. Don't talk. Don't feel. Don't trust. And we followed them pretty carefully. There, what, what are we going to talk about? Mom throwing up? Mom forgetting the driving group? I'm not going to take a chance to feel. How could I feel? No. No. So consequently, I had a lot of trouble. Don talks about school being easy for him. School was impossibly hard for me, I thought. I uh, got kicked out of this one school because I was beating this kid's head on the ground. And uh, they picked up on some of the anger. And uh, so um, they asked me to go to another school. And so I went to this private country day school, and uh, when I got there, I was a year behind in Latin. I didn't know any Latin at all, so I copied from the kid next to me. But it turned out that he didn't know any Latin either. Uh, 
And so uh, they caught me, and I was branded as a cheat. And I kept cheating until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and after I got here. And I'm still pretty sneaky sometimes. If I've made a resolution this year on a defective character to work on, and I'm not talking about the thing my sponsor talks about in the seventh step, I'm talking about forming an intention to be willing to change some behavior and make a decision to wake up. Hey, wake up! The translation of the word, the Buddha, means to be awake. I sleepwalk through my life. Running into people like a big bull, you know? Crushing sweet relationships. Even today. Well, here I am branded. And uh, I have one way to get away with murder. I could play a little bit of athletics, and so I got away with murder and for years in that school. My class was a graduating class of seven. Uh, I always put down on college applications in top ten. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I found the most important thing in the world to me for the longest period of time I found alcohol. What a pal. I mean, it just put me in gear. Today, people, lawyers, know Don and me, and we're active trying to help people, and, and they'll say, what is it? And they say, alcohol works. That's the reason. The best cure in the world for alcoholism is alcohol. Because it goes boom and puts you in gear. And I would go from... This enormous secret I had. I always had this enormous secret. I'm not enough. I'm not going to do it right. You're going to find out. And you're going to make me go away. And I have three drinks. And I'm over that. And I have six drinks. And I'm in charge. (laughs) Captain Hogue. (laughs) (laughs) So I... uh, I found booze, and as Don said, it made every decision in my life in the greatest ways. I want to talk just real quickly about drinking. I don't give any drunk log to speak of. One time I was talking to Don, and you heard Don last night, and what a powerful speaker. And uh, I've heard that story over 200 times. And I still go with him to hear that story. Because it is the truth. It resonates in me and helps me make decisions to change the quality of my life and the lives of those around me. That all we're talking about is my actions. I call him up. I say, Don, I don't want to do this. I know I'm, I'm in trouble. As soon as I say, I don't want to do this, you know, and we have the discussion about whether or not I want to do it. It doesn't have much to do with it. And so I'm supposed to tell you what I was like, and I'm supposed to identify for you that I'm truly alcoholic. We were just in the bar, over, uh, in the bar, that's what you call it. We were just in the breakfast area over there, and I told two stories. There wasn't a person at the table didn't believe I was alcoholic. I, I can't tell those on tape, but they were they were quick and identified it. I, I give you one example. I was uh, came home from college here in Fairfield, Iowa, right up the road here, huh? A little while, and uh, I scooted home. It was the first weekend of college, but I had to come home because there was a very fancy 
debutante party by the media family. And I didn't want to miss that. And so I come walking in and I grab a waiter who I knew and I take the tray of drinks. It was a big tray. And uh, I fired down enough drinks to get in charge. And then I throw the hostess, this heir to the whole media empire, across the dance floor and kind of into the wall. And uh, so I knew it was time to leave. Uh, And I got to the front door and they begged me to please not go because one of the college kids had just gone through a windshield at the University of Virginia and he was all cut up and they begged me not to go and taking away keys from an alcoholic is, you know, it's one of the hardest jobs in the world. You know, it's just very tough to get done. And so I wouldn't give them and I got got in my daddy's car and I kind of crushed the car in front of me and then I kind of crushed behind me because they had boxed me in. And, uh, and finally I got pulled around and I came down the hill and I ran into these enormous stone gates that are in front of this mansion. And uh, that was really hard on the car. And uh, and then uh, I had a choice, turn left and go ten blocks to my family's home or turn right and go to Carrollton and go to Cincinnati, which is about a hundred miles up the road. I don't get ahead of me. Uh, I woke up in Carrollton, which is about 50 miles up the road, and I realized, wrong turn. And uh, so I got to scoot back because my ride's going to pick me up very quickly. And I had vomited in the pocket of my tuxedo because uh, I didn't want to vomit in the car. You know. And uh, so I got back. I had to tell my father a real quick story about the drunk bumps all over the car, and then I had to put the tuxedo in a suit bag and just put it in the closet. <laughs> and uh, a couple of weeks later, I got the uh, the letter, dear son. We have found a more full explanation of the damage to the automobile, and I was busted again. My father it was called St. Bill. He hung in there with my mother every, every time. He never looked sideways. He always did the next right thing. But sometimes he was forced to say some things to me like parents have to do. And he would say, uh, he's a very gentle man, very gentle man. One time he said to me, he said, Son, I know you know about being a gentleman. But what I'm interested in is whether or not you would like to be a gentle man. And I didn't know anything about that. He said, you, I know you know the rules so you can make other people feel uncomfortable about being a gentleman. But I would like you to try to be a little more gentle. He had to say some things to me that I know broke his heart. He would say, uh, son... You have really hurt your mother and I. He would say, uh, Son, I'm sorry, but your word's no good. You can't be trusted. Son, you seem to think the world owes you a living. I think you're going to be disappointed. Son, why is it that you crush everybody that cares so much about you? After my mother died, I used to write my dad letters on how to divorce her. 
I had a few resentments. Uh, she made the list. Uh, and uh, I was having lunch with uh, my dad. As Clancy told me, uh, after you go and you tell all that, Dad, I'm sorry, and I was a drunk and all that foolishness, the key is, is they want you to show up. That's all my dad ever wanted was for me to be there. And uh, I went and had lunch with him, and I said, how in the world did you hang in there for so long? And he said, well, son, there's a certain group of people to whom sacrifice gives them a feeling of well-being. And I didn't understand what he was talking about. I, uh, I was not one of those people. He, uh, we were having my third wedding, uh, and I, I, I know the only reason Don was talking about weddings last night is that he's got me beat. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> collectively, we have a bunch, huh? <laughs> but uh, we were uh, we were talking about my my old pop, and he was with uh, another one of my spiritual mentors, Paul C. and. Uh, they had played golf that day at the club, not in the same foursome, and he said, well, Bill, it looks like young Bill's going to make it, you know? Been married, been sober here about seven years, going to get married. Looks like he's going to make it, huh? And my father said, Paul, I believe we'll reserve judgment on that. He couldn't take the chance. He just gotten his heart broken too many times, you know. But we're square today. I, I had been on this trip, and uh, his second wife, who uh, was a dear, dear woman and a contrapositive of my mother, was super active and was everywhere and involved in everything and took him along to everything. And they went on cruises and great trips, and they were married 11 years, and she died. And I got home from one of these deals, and there was a fight between the two families. They wanted to have a big wake, and he wanted to bury Johnny in a special little garden that had been made at their church, which had a statue that they had paid for that was dedicated to her grandchild who had died of suicide and to little Annie. And uh, he knew that's where she wanted to be buried. And the family wanted to have a political business funeral. And my father said, son, I need you to hold my arm because I don't want to fall down. Eighty years old, and uh, I got to be there for it. And uh, that's solely as a result of the program of recovery. And me and Dad were all square. I will point out, he still would like to see me some. <laughs> you know, he lives uh, he lives a couple of blocks away. And uh, last year he married for the third time. Uh, those hope boys, <laughs> you know, he did a little different than me. Uh, and uh, eighty something years old, and uh, he had his coming out party as he always does. He waits a year, and then he has his coming out party, and then he <laughs> finds a bride, and uh, <laughs> she's, a, she's a lovely girl. <laughs> she is. She's just wonderful. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, I was going somewhere with that, but I forgot, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> the key is is that is that we can have a reconciliation. Oh, I know what the point was. The point was is that she has a beautiful home in Naples, Florida. Her family founded Naples, Florida. And uh, and he started going there and last year and I was saying, Damn, I can't see Dad. You know, heck, I mean I could I could be seeing him all the time, certainly once a month. But now he's in Florida, <laughs> you know. He's been home all summer, by the way. You know. So being a good son is uh all part of doing the drill. My dear friend Burns taught me about doing the drill in our little group that we started a long, long time ago when we listened to Joe and Charlie together. And we started calling it the drill, the process of Alcoholics Anonymous, the process of action. When you think you're having your skin pulled off by a pair of pliers and you've got to do something, and you go through that 10-step process. So I... Uh, I didn't know anything about the drill. I didn't know there was anything wrong with me. I, I kept drinking, and uh, I never really paid the consequences for that kind of behavior, but I paid plenty, you know. And it's not the drama. I did not know that alcoholism is not the drama. You know, you listen to Don's story, goodness, what a cost. What a dramatic story, you know. One time I was telling Don that, I, I was sorry I didn't uh, have his story, you know, because it was so dramatic. And he said, well, Billy, I got sober at 37. You got sober at 33. You could have made it. <laughs> but I didn't know it wasn't the drama till I was going through the book again with one of our homeless guys in our home group. And he asked me to go through the book. And the first day he came to my office, I said, uh, well, Brad, it must be kind of tough living in a homeless shelter. He said, no, Billy, once you've uh, lived in a shed with no heat for a couple of years, it's not that tough not having fitted sheets. <laughs> he was studying the uh, Hebrew because that's the only thing he could afford as a hobby. Uh, the biggest day in his life, uh, he came and told me about it. He had had this enormous day. He got a door on his room when he became on assistant staff. And uh teach you a little something about humility. I, I, I've always worried about that humility thing because people accuse me of not being humble. <clears throat> and, you know, I take umbrage at it. I, you know, I, I always consider myself like David Rosier, the lawyer from Tennessee that was a famous AA speaker. I'm about the humblest son bitch you ever met. <laughs> uh, but uh, I've gotten a, a working thing that will work for me just fine. Humility is to be grateful and uh, to be somewhat right-sized because of your gratitude. My dear sponsor and I get to talk, uh, not every day, but pretty close. You know I'm in trouble when I'm not grateful for my eyes. I'm in big trouble then. That's, that's when I'm out there by myself, not in conscious contact. Well, I'm supposed to tell you just a couple other drunk stories to convince you that I was a bad alcoholic. I find that very amusing. You know, why I would try to convince you that I was a bad drunk, you know. Uh, but uh, I was, uh, my first day of law school, that was a real important day to me. And uh, so I was here at this 
party, this rush party. And again, I had the drinks and I got in charge and I was in gear. So I brought all these new friends back to the my house. And I loved to take off my clothes when I was drinking. Uh, I, I was in a lot better shape. Uh, and uh, So I announced we were going skinny dipping and I dropped my clothes there in the living room to kind of make the point. And a couple of idiots came out and got in the car with me and we went over to this country club to jump in the swimming pool. And as we came around the corner, I saw some young people making love underneath the paddle tennis court. And so to, I put some light on them. I wanted to give them a little light. And so I uh, stopped my car and I put it in reverse and I backed up real quick and I went over the cliff. <laughs> and, and it rolled down the hill and uh, caught on fire. And uh, so here's this uh, car on fire and you know, the big burly record driver that drove me home and the fire department and the police department, I don't believe they ever did really believe that I had lost my clothes trying to put out that fire. Ten till eleven, not ten till twelve. This is Louisville time. I thought, boy, Billy, they, they, this is going really quick. You must be doing great. You know? um, so, I, are you getting the hint that I was didn't things didn't work out well? I, Brad's the same guy that I learned about this. It's not the drama. Some people are alcoholic and they drink by themselves, sipping sherry in their tea in their parlor. It is the fact that I have a physical craving, an obsession of the mind. And that is unmanageable. It's right there on the first page of chapter 4. I can't drink successfully because when I get to drinking, I end up in Florida. You know, I keep going till I'm done. And done sometimes takes a while. And a lot of stuff happens. You know? And then I can't not drink. I used to make the resolution in January. I'll show you. I'm not, you know, I'm a captain of my ship. I'm in charge. I won't drink for the month of January. I did that here in St. Louis. They had the world's foremost fire expert on firefighters, on uh, the cardio muscle in firefighters and the destruction of it. And I was supposed to take his deposition in January, 1978 or so. And, uh, it was in the January window. I wasn't supposed to be drinking, but I went by this bar, and you know, it was like the gay bar that that Bill writes about at the Mayflower. You know, and I, oh, I better go in there and check it out. And, and you know, I missed the deposition. And, you know, that's that's bad. That's bad business. You know, and I I, uh, I tell one more story. I had this lovely bride, and uh, she was my second wife. My first wife had put me through law school. And uh, I always tell this about our selfishness. Uh, I told her it wouldn't be necessary for her to come to my graduation. I already had another date. Uh, <laughs> we can be a little selfish and self-centered. Uh, but I did make amends. Burns and I were together up at Clifty Falls when Kathy H., uh, kind of pushed me off the stage up there because she had been her roommate. <laughs> you know, uh, other people don't see our selfishness exactly the same way we do. Um, 
and uh, they didn't know I had made these amends. You know, I wrote her a letter, and <laughs> but fortunately, I did have the amends. I had the letter. I used to keep those files. I finally destroyed all those AA files a couple of years ago because I kept living in what I used to have done. You know, <laughs> my pain today comes from the carnage of my future. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I. Uh, I had this lovely bride, and uh, she had had to leave me. She said, Billy, I can't stay around and watch you die. And uh, she's quite a gal. And so I had been in this political thing, and I thought I was entitled to a big payoff. And so I had a bunch of free trips on the government. I went to Hawaii, you know, here today, going to Maui. And I'm smoking all that weed, and I'm drinking planter's punches. And uh, the long and short of that story is, is I... I can't get out of my hotel room. I'm terrified. I'm calling her up and I'm saying, you got to come and get me. Now, she's left. <laughs> you got to come and get me in Hawaii because I'm scared to death. I don't know what it is. I just know I'm terrified. I can't get out of the room. <laughs> I love this idea about what happened. What happened's a long story. You know, I mean, what happened was many, many years of drinking and getting hammered by this stuff. You know, and Don always talks about it. Most of us talk about it. You know, if God drove you out of these rooms, then liquor will drive you back. You know, what happened? Some people, I love Sister B. She describes it as, uh, I see Sister R back there, I think. Uh, You know, she says, remember the day you died. I like that. I think that's a good explanation. I like also the story about, there was a guy named uh, London who used to write about Alaska and very exciting stories. He was a horrible alcoholic and he was great friends with John Barrymore. And John Barrymore used to stay in the town's hospital where Bill had his flash. And uh, so, that's what the New York guys, I mean the Akron guys call it, you know, when Bill had his hot flash. And so uh, Barrymore would stay there, and actually they had a whole area where Barrymore would get the executive treatment. You know, I'm not sure that's real good, this Robert Downey Jr., you know, it keeps seeming to, when he drinks, he breaks out in handcuffs, you know. But uh, (laughs) Barrymore and uh, London were great friends, and uh, Jack London described the disease, described alcoholism, which, of course, he wasn't calling a disease at the time, as the noseless one, the skull. And uh, he wrote to Barrymore and he said, Last night the noseless one came and he took my heart. Three days later he killed himself. That would pretty well describe where I was when I said, God help me. I can't keep doing this. I'm done. And uh, I was going to this shrink. Uh, I'd been in another wreck. I sank this sailboat, which was a little bit of a problem because we didn't have any life preservers, and there were nine people on board, and there were some non-swimmers, and uh, none of the people were each other's wives and husbands. And and the real problem was is it was dark. Uh, no, the real problem was is it was snowing. Uh, only alcoholics go sailing in snowstorms. Uh, so uh, 
Here I've been in intensive care. I didn't get it. They had the audacity to put down on my medical records, Dr. Shields and Garner Shelley, they put down on my medical records that it might be alcohol and drug-related. Fired those guys quick. Uh, and uh, they didn't know who I was. You know? And so I, uh, I'm seeing this shrink. I had this Far Eastern Indian doctor. He said, Bill, I don't believe your problems. They are so much medical. I think it is the way you live. Will you help me with the way you live? And I knew what he wanted me to do. You know, he wanted me to see a shrink. And I understood about sabotaging shrinks. I had been sleeping with the marriage counselor, which I thought was a little unethical of her. Uh, you know. But, but uh, then I, you know, I was handling her divorce, so it went both ways. So I went to see this doctor, and Dr. John Bell, and Dr. Bell said, I'm not going to see you if you keep drinking. And he probably saved my life. And uh, I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll take an abuse, and that'll prove that I'm not drinking, because I may be pretty crazy and wild, but I'm not stupid, and I've seen my mother drink on an abuse, and I won't be doing that. And I thought that was conclusive proof that I wouldn't be drinking. And so he gave me a prescription. I went to the drugstore and I tried to get it filled, and it was this like thousand milligram antibuse. He wanted to kill me if I had a beer, you know. And uh, they couldn't fill it at the drugstore. I had to send away to get it filled, and that scared me. He had some little trust in me, and uh, so finally I couldn't. I realized the most important week of my life, which was this week, 23 years ago. When I couldn't quit drinking, I just couldn't stop. I thought I could stop. I always thought I was in charge. I thought I was in charge. I thought I stopped for years and years and years after I got here. And now I realize, of course, I couldn't stop. And uh, that's real important. I had become where no human power could do it. That place had happened. I didn't know it had happened. And uh, I thought antabuse would catch me from behind. I thought I had to quit drinking long enough to take the antabuse. And I thought I'd get very sick if I had drunk the day before. And so I couldn't stop, but I wanted to be with Wonder Woman. I had met this new woman, and it was a Halloween party. And so I said goodbye, beer. And that was the end of Halloween, 1980. So, I uh, here I am, and you would think, well, you know, got 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 done pretty early here. It's the end of the story. But the other part is, you're supposed to talk about what I'm like now, and what I'm like now is that I started this process, and as I've described, I didn't do it according to the book. I had a wonderful sponsor. He died with 47 years, Jack Latham. He uh, was quite a guy. You could see the power coming through him, and the gentleness and the love. And it was the only kind of sponsor I probably could have had. If somebody had told me what to do, I would have blown them off. You know, I described to, to myself what it was like when I was with my father, and I had simply developed a code for living. Billy doesn't do what Billy doesn't want to do. That's all. You know, unless you're big enough to make me, I had a Marine Corps DI that could make me do a few things, a football coach, but you know, not many people. And uh, Don says that's not a bad description of living in the disease. <laughs> I uh, 
was uh, trying to practice my program on myself. I went out to California to make amends to this wife. She was a very special woman. And I had been a business typhoon. And I, that means I blew through a lot of business deals and destroyed uh, all of them. And uh, I was a coal baron and a cattle baron and a bagel baron and an oil baron. And, and they were all 120% financed, you know. And, and so uh, we uh, we had uh, had this one problem in the cattle deal that uh, some guy stole them all. And they weren't insured, so we had a problem. And uh, so we tracked the guy down, and we promote him on the FBI's wanted list as a fugitive. And they catch him, drunken driving, Oklahoma City. Well, he was hanging with us. Of course, that's the way they catch him. And they sent him back to Kentucky. And they got him in western Kentucky. And the guy that was uh, judging him, we called him Flipper because he was missing his arms. And he turned the page of the record with his arm like that. And pissed me off. I, boy, I hated that guy, you know. And, and he kept throwing me out of the courtroom saying I was not, not being decorous. And so I went out to make amends to this woman. And uh, the way I'm instructed to make amends is to take that eighth step and to have that list and to bring those people up on the screen of my mind and be willing to look them in the eye and say, I know what I did to you, but I'm not sure what that did to you. So you tell me what i got to do so we can get square. Changes the energy just a little bit if you got to get... If you tell, let them tell you. And I think that's a big part of the amend process, is letting them tell you what you did to them. And so I said that to Kay, and she all I ever wanted was for you to be sober. All I ever wanted was for you to be happy. You want to get square with me? You stay sober. You be happy. Well, we kept uh, having this wonderful trip. She was out in California where she had this big shot job, and we went up and down the coast, and the last day, she asked me to go to this church. Now, I hadn't been to a church in many, many years. Supposedly, a Catholic priest had told my mother the reason my little sister died was because my father was a Protestant. And I had this thing with church and religion and God, you know, and with God on our side, six million in the ovens they fried, you know, and... Uh, the Indians didn't have God on their side. That's what Bob Dylan told me, and I, I believed whatever Bob told me, you know. <laughs> that was my religion. And uh, so I was a little little angry, but I had agreed to go to any lengths to make this lady happy. And so I went to this church, and they, the priest comes out, and he's a Episcopalian priest. He's got the right glasses on, you know. He's got the Gucci's on. He's he's looking pretty sharp. And I go, oh, this will be all right. Harvard Divinity School, this will be okay. And uh, he talks about... In the epistle and the gospel, forgiveness. They had set the cattle thief free and told him to pay like $25 a week, and in 3,000 years we'd have our money back. You know? And I was a little angry. I thought what we needed to do was give him some sodium pentothal and then hang him. Because you know? I was into justice. I was the chief prosecutor in the county attorney's office when I got sober. I had an eight-man law firm. My name was first. I had a new Cadillac automobile. I lived in a real fancy apartment building. I had a couple of very young girlfriends. You know, I thought I was managing great. You know, well, I uh, heard this gospel and epistle, and I'm going, don't start with me. You know, I don't go for this God stuff. And uh, so then he said, 
that he had heard in the basement of that church the night before a whole bunch of homeless, broken men who had held hands and they had said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And it seems like you can only be forgiven as much as you're willing to forgive. And I saw that. I'm a lawyer. That was a tricky phrase, boy. I could see that was the deal. And as my dear sponsor tells me, don't limit God's forgiveness. So I decided I'd throw it all in. And I let it go, and I made a great, what I consider to be a great third step kind of action. You know, I turned it over to a lawyer. <laughs> I always think that giving a problem to somebody that has a clue what to do with it is a third step kind of action. You know, <laughs> and so uh, it turned out to be kind of lucky because uh, my partners went through one more big business deal, and uh, they put together this airplane to bring in five thousand pounds of dope. And they had made one critical error. They had chosen an undercover DEA agent as the pilot and a terrible choice of pilots. And so he had been tape recording the thing the whole time. And uh, they had the tapes, and I was supposed to opt out of the conspiracy. And this federal proceeding, Don can explain the law on that. And, uh, and so they were hoping to get me because here I am the chief prosecutor, and, you know, they want to handcuff me like this, you know. And they had marched my partners into the into the courthouse and they listened to those tapes time and time again and all they ever heard according to a friend of mine was well don't drink for the rest of the afternoon and I'll see you over at the token club and we'll go to a meeting tonight and they don't put you in the penitentiary for that they don't take away your law license they did do that to my partners and uh, they left me around instead to get to come down here to Hannibal and share with you folks and uh that's turned out to be a pretty good deal by me, okay? Uh, I uh, kept flying around in this program, though, because I still wasn't going for the God thing. And I need to make real clear that it turned out that that whole priest thing was wrong. As a result of a fifth-step activity with a guy, he told me, that can't possibly be. That priest kept my father and mother to, would not let my father convert. He said, just be a good Presbyterian. He never said it. Don points out on a regular basis that we were taking the word of a woman who was locked up, who was pretty much a drug addict and an alcoholic, hearsay evidence, you know, about something that never happened. So be careful. This process works uh, very well, but you got to work it. And I did it my way. So I went to... All of this victim stuff, and uh, I spent five years in therapy, and i got to speed that up here real quick uh, and get you off, of the, off to lunch. Uh, I went to this victim deal, and uh, I, got, I really got into it. Man, I could make that spin, you know? Little Annie dying. Boy, I could make that. I could make that get you. And uh, so I got heavily into self-obsession, and... Uh, Don finally got hold of me. I mean, I went to Bradshaw and on-site and all that therapy and therapy every week and obsessing on myself. And there's only one problem with being a victim. If you really are a victim, if they really are doing it to you, you got one problem. There's nothing you can do about it. If, in fact, you have the power behind you, there's all sorts of things you can do about it. 
Don said, Billy, how can obsessing on yourself be the answer to being selfish and self-centered? And that was the end, by the way. So I uh, met this woman, and that's a result of some of all of what I've tried to do work-wise. She was sweet enough to marry me, and she's quite a gal. And she got sober because of Don. I met her in an institution where she had a little bathrobe on, and she came up and said her boyfriend, the the law enforcement guy had told her to get me as a lawyer. She got in a little trouble. She kept sneaking the Demerol out in her arm uh, from the hospital, and they got really, really grumpy about that. And so uh, she needed a lawyer. And uh, so she got sober. And uh, in 1989, we got married. And uh, we had a really, really great deal. And I was 47 years old. And she always, she's so smart, she waited a long time in the courtship, and then she waited for whatever it was that she wanted, the dog in the house and the two cars in the garage and all that stuff that I wasn't much into. And uh, But then she announced point blank, the clock went off, and she announced point blank, I want to have a baby. Whoa, you know, direct funnel assault. I said, wait a minute, I, I don't see that in the contract, you know. Uh, and... Uh, so I want to introduce you to our little girl. Uh, she's a. Uh, her name is Alexander Ann. She's named after my little sister, A.A. Uh, a. Hoke. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I'm buying term life insurance for college planning. Uh, I figure, you know, I'll be gone. Uh, but uh, and she's wired up just like me. But I still didn't have this God thing, and I had this really cool job, and I wound up with this last stories. Uh, I had this great job that I had designed. I had written all the specs on it, and it was, I made a lot of money, etc., and I hated it. And I went, and I was with Burns. We were over at the Morton Center, and they said, Billy, you seem really afraid. What do you do when you're afraid? Yeah, take an inventory. Next week, Billy, you seem really angry. What do you do when you're angry? Taking inventory. And it got so painful the next week I went home and uh, I did the inventory. And there it was. 39 resentments. 39 times setting aside the wrongs others have done. We resolutely look for our mistake. It doesn't say anything about our part. It's our mistakes. My mistakes are usually grandiosity and self-centeredness and greed. And, you know, my mistakes. <clears throat> well... I needed to quit this job. And uh, so I was going to do a little role playing. I suggested that to Don. And uh, I want to finish one point that's very important. You know, we read these, uh, these promises on page 83, and they're wonderful. But we have the promises throughout the book. You know, the promises in the fifth step. How about those promises? My fears will fall away. You know, how about the third step promises? I'll be reborn. I mean, there's incredibly powerful promises. I'll tell you, the coolest promise in the whole book for my money, though, our troubles are of our own making. Now, there's a promise, you know? Because <laughs> uh, that means I can, I can do something about it, you know? But I didn't have this God thing, and I had this job, and I hated it. And I told Don I need to do a little role playing. You know, trial lawyers have all these different tricks we can do. And Don said, Billy, Billy, Billy. <laughs> Buddy, I don't think we need to do that now. 
why don't you instead be a little Western Union man, put on your little Western Union hat, and go and gently, quietly, and lovingly tell the guy the truth? Can you imagine being responsible for all the telegrams that were delivered during the Vietnam War for the reaction of the people that got them? Your job is to be honest. One time I was doing this and I said, God, please give me something halfway new and original. And there are no original thoughts, but give me something new for me to say. And I did have this thought that I always explained that I was a people pleaser and I was just so sensitive to people's feelings and this people pleasingness was part of me, you know. And actually what it is is I'm just simply dishonest. <laughs> 